If you would please turn in the Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look this morning at uh, verses 1 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 5 on page 978 in the Pew Bible. Or in your own Bible, I'm reading from the ESV. If you would please stand for God's word. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, a church he dearly loved and knew very, very well. This is what he had to say to them. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers or partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your servant Paul. Thank you for these words uh, from him, from you. We pray, gracious God, that you would send your powerful spirit upon us today. That you would pry open our cold, resistant hearts and give us grace that we might hear your voice. Believe, obey, and rejoice for Jesus' sake. Amen. And please be seated. If you turn in the bulletin to pages 8 and 9, you'll find the text written out for you, including a couple of verses from the New Testament text. I've started Greek for the first time in 35 years, and so I've written out a couple of verses here. I'm going to make reference to a few of the Greek words in that passage. And there's also space for a few notes, so if you'd like to take advantage of that, feel free. I'm a... You may not be able to tell this from looking at me, but I'm, I'm a person who actually enjoys to walk. Uh, I love walking. Uh, it's my preferred form of exercise. And I actually, over the course of my life, have done a lot of walking. It's, it's a lot of fun to me. It's something that uh, soothes me, and, and I enjoy the sounds of nature and looking around and seeing different things. Uh, several years ago, I went for a particularly interesting walk. I was with a friend, actually a couple of friends, and we had gone to Ireland. I uh, mentioned John Brown. John Brown was an, an Irishman, and I think 
haven't the birds been to Ireland, to John's house on the northern coast of, of Ireland? Well, I was in Ireland uh, visiting a friend, and, and we went for a long walk. And uh, we, we drove to the place where we were going to walk. It was a big park, and I'd never been there before. But, uh, you know, it was supposedly a famous place. And so we drove over there, and we actually got there uh, at night. Uh, we intended to go the next day, but we got there uh, and thought, well, let's, let's go over there and just uh, see what it's like. So we drove over in the middle of the night. Uh, it's probably about, I guess, 10.30, 11 o'clock. But we were young and crazy at the time. And so we drove out to this little place where you could go for long walks. And it was also a foggy night. And so we parked our car and uh, thought, well, this is, this is not very exciting. You can't see anything with the fog and the darkness. So uh, we just got out of the car and, and walked uh, not very far, a short walk, I don't know, 15-minute walk. Walked back to the car and thought, well, this, this isn't really uh, all that interesting. We got back in the car, drove to where we were staying the night, and came back the next morning to the exact same location. <laughs> and in the bright light of day, the fog had, had uh, melted away, and uh, we had been walking on the edge of this incredible cliff. I mean, I'm not kidding you. It was like the cliffs of Dover high, you know, that high uh, where to fall off that cliff would have been deadly. And there we were staggering around in the dark, looking around, thinking, oh, we're, you know, well, this, this is interesting, not too much to see here. Um, completely unaware of how dangerous it was that we were out walking around, unaware of the pitfalls and the dangers all around us. Well, this morning, as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is going to take this idea of walking, and he's going to use it in a way that's very distinctive of him. He's going to use uh, the Greek word peripateo, and if you look at the, just look at the little Greek text that I gave you and look at verse 2, the second word in the Greek text there, it says, kai peripateta. Uh, that is the Greek word for walking. And that word shows up many times in the Gospels. Uh, it's used uh, 39 times in the Gospels. And every time the word peripateo or a version of that word is used, it always refers to literally walking around physically, to go somewhere and walk like I was doing on the cliffs there in Ireland, uh, to go and walk. But interestingly, Paul uses the word 32 times in his letters, and in all the times Paul uses the word for walk, peripateo, he means it figuratively. He means like walking through life, uh, walking along through uh, all the experiences that we have as Christians, as people, this, this idea of, of life as a walk. Well, I want to take that metaphor. Actually, Paul takes this metaphor, more importantly. He takes this metaphor in verse 1. And he's talking to the church there in Ephesus that he loved very much. And he says, therefore, be imitators of God. Now, that word therefore, if you look in the Greek text, it's actually the second word in the verse, a little word, uh, that's uh, pronounced un. Uh, Omicron upsilon nu with a smooth breathing mark, which I am being reminded, is pronounced ooh, un. So uh, Paul says, uh, therefore, un, do something. There's a connection between everything he's already said in chapters 1 to 4 
and what he's now saying in chapter 5 and chapter 6. There's a connection. Uh, What he's been saying leads us logically to what he's now saying. What he's already said leads us logically to what he's now going to say. And basically what he's saying is, everything I've taught you, Ephesians, about your relationship with Christ, your relationship with God through Christ, because of all that, I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. Uh, To get an idea of the kinds of things Paul has told us, flip over a page uh, to page 976 and just read how Paul wrote these amazing words Paul writes to describe uh, what was true for the, for the Ephesian Christians. Verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him through heaven and things on earth. That's one long sentence. Paul begins his letter to the church in Ephesus with this this long train of thought where he's describing, in, by the way, distinctly Presbyterian terms. Uh, He uses some terms that are well known in our tradition. He's, He's explaining the fullness of what God has done for the Ephesian Christians in Christ. And what God has done for the Ephesian Christians in Christ, He has done for us in Christ. All these blessings, just amazing blessings. It, it feels almost like it's just gushing out with, with joy and praise. And, and Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to grasp this declaration of their new identity in Christ. Who they are now in Christ. And he develops that theme in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. And here in chapter 5, now Paul says, because of all that, therefore, because of what God has done for us, because of the blessings God has poured out upon you, the blessings he has given you in Christ, therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, a relationship grounded in Christ. Verse 2, and walk, peripateo, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's taking his theological framework, the identity we now have because of Jesus, a relationship that he several times refers to as, as being like children, beloved children, the very idea that you and I can know God, the creator of the universe, that we can know that creating, sustaining, sovereign God as beloved children. And he says, now imitate that God. And he he makes it even more specific in verse 2. Imitate that God by walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. 
In fact, chapters 5 and 6 are all about unpacking that. Paul often does this. He, he makes this incredible theological case of who we are and what the Bible tells us about what Jesus has done for us. He, he makes this case. He, he emphasizes this case. That's where he usually begins. And now he says, because of that, do this. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. We usually begin the other way around. We often begin with the instructions, the imperatives, the commands. We feel much more comfortable telling people what to do than explaining something to them. Uh, Church life can often become just a, a long list of things you're supposed to do, right? Well, that's not where Paul begins. That's not where the gospel begins. The gospel begins with the initiative of God. What God has done. And because of what he's done in his electing, predestinating, sovereign power that Paul describes here and elsewhere, because of that relationship which is secured through the blood of Jesus, not on account of our works but on account of his work, because of that, now he says live in a certain way. And he's going to describe uh, a lot about all the different practicalities of life. In these two chapters, he's going to touch on relationships. He's going to talk about the way we deal with one another in our homes, the way we deal with one another at work, the way we deal with the world around us. He's going to touch base on all of these things. He's going to talk about how we defend ourselves and engage the world. He's going to go on to develop all these things, but it's all based on this foundational relationship which is based not on something we do, but on what God has done. So let's be very clear on that. Let's understand that. And now he's going to say, walk in love as Christ loved us. Now you walk. He doesn't say drive. (laughs) He doesn't say ride. He says walk. Walk. And there's something wonderful about I mentioned loving walking I mean a walk is a is an intentional movement in a particular direction you're ideally when you're walking you're going somewhere a a good walk is you're going somewhere and Paul says in Christ walk in love like Jesus loved us now this morning we're going to be looking at these first 14 verses and what he does is he describes some pitfalls Unlike me and my friends stumbling around on a cliff in Ireland in the middle of the night, unaware of the danger we were in, Paul tells us about the pitfalls. He actually cautions us. He, he, he wants us to know about the pitfalls that we will face. And he gives us several pitfalls here. We're going to deal with each of these three different pitfalls he describes. One, he's going to describe sin that destroys Uh, Look at uh, verse 3. But, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not be named, must not even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. I don't know about you, but in a few sentences, Paul described my unconverted life. And Paul's actually saying to the converted Christians in Ephesus, those behaviors, 
those underlying attitudes will destroy you. He goes on to to talk about it. Uh, Verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verses 3 to 5 describe this pitfall of sin that destroys. Uh, now Paul makes a couple of points here. He says, he says that these behaviors, these things, shouldn't even be named among the saints. It's, it's not even something that should be part of our life together. Um, it's not, he says, it, it's out of place. It's not in place in the life of God's people. And yet, brothers and sisters, it's often in our life, isn't it? It's often in our life. I mean, here in this room, when we're together on Sundays and when we get together from time to time, we usually manage to control those behaviors. But take us away from our church family and we're out in the world. How tempting is it to float back into those unconverted ways of talking, unconverted ways of thinking, unconverted ways of behaving? One of the reasons we get together every single Lord's Day and why I strongly encourage you to make it a point to gather regularly with God's people is we need to encourage each other, remind each other, strengthen one another, pray for one another, build one another up so that we can resist these sins that destroy. Paul uses some very strong words. Verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who who is covetous, has no inheritance. Wow, those are very, very strong words. And he means them to be strong. He wants us to know the destructive power of sin in, in our lives and in the world. We tend to underestimate the power of these thoughts and behaviors. We don't really take to heart how desperately serious they are. What a terrible cliff we're walking beside through life. This terrible cliff. So Paul warns the Ephesian Christians. Now I want to be really clear about a couple of things. When Paul says in verse 8 what he says about uh, the reality of sin and having no inheritance. He's not saying, he's not saying that every time we have an impure thought or we stumble in, in the way we're looking at something or even a behavior, he's not saying that we're one step away from destruction. Because, the, again, Greek is helpful here. The, the idea is, is not just a, a single isolated event or, or something that we stumble into and repent of. The idea is a continuous, ongoing, intentional way of behaving and thinking and talking. To have this ongoing, continuous way of behaving, thinking and talking, that can be destructive. It can actually lead us to stumble. It can lead us to cause other people to stumble. Paul says, no, our life, our walk, is not to be characterized in this way. Our life, our walk is to be characterized by repentance. Yes, we stumble. Yes, we make missteps. But we avoid the cliffs 
because in Christ we come running back to Him. In Christ we, we confess that sin that we've committed. We, we confess to one another. We, can, we just did it. We literally just did it. We confessed our sins to the God who in Christ deals once and for all with our sins. Praise God for the gospel. We all have the chance to turn again and walk with the Lord. And so Paul wants us to beware of this ongoing, continuous pattern of unrepentant sin. And he focuses in on some very specific sins. He talks about sexual immorality. That, that word is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. Porneia. Sexual immorality means uh, any sort of sexual activity outside of a lifetime uh, sexual relationship between one man and one woman. Uh, anything outside of that, any sort of sexual behavior outside of that is porneia. And then he talks about impurity. And that's a, another word that kind of has wrapped up within it a sensuality. Uh, it may or may not be explicitly connected to a sexual act, but it's, it's a, a behavior, a way of looking at everything that is sensual, impure, full of lust. And then he does something interesting. He ties it to this idea of covetousness. Because you see, isn't, isn't that what most sexual sin is, is actually grounded in? Is my deep, greedy desire, this covetousness for something that isn't mine or isn't yours. He calls that covetousness. And he goes on to say that that kind of covetousness is idolatry. It's worshiping something, not the Lord. And so Paul gives us, he warns us this, this pitfall to the Ephesian Christians and to us today. Beware this cliff. Beware these behaviors that can lead you into destructive sin. Um, I think that's something our culture, our generation needs to be reminded of. I mean, so much of the culture in which we live is it's obsessed by these things. It's, it's obsessed by porneia. It's obsessed by sensuality. It, it's obsessed by covetousness, this desire to have other things, and whether it's sexual things or other things of any kind, where we're just obsessed with it. Paul says, don't do that. That is not true to who you are in Christ. So, so don't allow yourself to be sucked into these behaviors, attitudes, ways of thinking, this destructive sin that is a, a, a reality that we need to be aware of. So he's very realistic about that as he, as he talks about our walk, things we need to be aware of. I want to encourage all of you. There, there are many young people in the room today. And I just want to encourage you as you start your life out in Christ, as you, as you grow up. This is a, a great danger for our society. It's a great danger for each one of you to stumble into these things. Going off to college exposes many of our young people to things they've never really had to wrestle with. Beware. This, this, this sinfulness that we can buy into and, and, and make it characterize our life, that's destructive. It exposes us to all kinds of dangerous things. And so Paul 
cautions the church as it walks in love to beware of sin that destroys. There's another pitfall he describes. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Um, I don't know if many of you follow rock music like I do. But uh, when I was younger, I used, to, I used to really enjoy the Rolling Stones. And uh, Keith Richards uh, is a fellow who made a name for himself as a guitarist in the Rolling Stones. Uh, in case you've been uh, under a rock for 50 years, uh, the Rolling Stones are a big band that was uh, hugely popular, and Keith Richards was the hugely popular guitarist. Well, Keith Richards has written a biography. Did you know that? It's an autobiography that came out a few years ago. And, uh, you know, if you read the book, I haven't read it, but a friend of mine uh, started out to read. He was, like me, a fan of Keith Richards. And he said he started reading the book because he'd, he'd always in, been interested in, in this musician, started to read the book, and he said he, he got about 20 pages in, and he couldn't read it anymore. Uh, he's a Christian, my friend, and he said, I just couldn't read it. The, the things he was describing, the behaviors, the pornea that characterized this poor man's life, uh, he said, I, I just couldn't read it anymore. So he just had to close that book. But before he closed the book, within the first 20 pages, Keith Richards wrote that when the Rolling Stones were first meeting, first performing, they would get together in a little circle. It's hard to picture Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. They're gathered around. And they would pull out a book called On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. Anybody ever heard of Own Liberty by John Stuart Mill? John Stuart Mill was a prominent 19th century philosopher who wrote this book called Own Liberty. And in this book on Own Liberty, he's, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he basically says, each of us is free as consenting adults to engage in any action provided that it does not harm another person. That was in the mid-1800s. John Stuart Mill wrote words to that effect. And it's fascinating to me to picture this young rock band just starting out in the middle of a cultural revolution in their country and ours. And at the heart of it was this intellectual idea that you can do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. It's okay. And in fact, I would say that that idea as a, as a little seed has grown and grown and grown in our culture, a generation or two later, and probably every school child believes each of us is free as consenting adults to engage in any action provided that it does not harm another person. I've had those words thrown at me so many times on every controversial issue. I mean, you choose the controversial issue, particularly the, particularly the issues of pornea, sex, which we're obsessed with. And the logic goes, if I'm not hurting someone, hurt, quote unquote, it's none of your business. I mean, haven't you heard that argument made? Isn't, isn't that the liberal, broad-minded position in 2022? Is to say, you know, we, we don't care what you do as long as you don't hurt anybody while you're doing it. That's, that's our culture. It's, it's America. 
We, we've, we've run with that idea. So you're going to have college students you know, who are so confused and they, they don't understand. They're, they're so messed up in their, in their understanding of life and the world. Well, it's nothing new. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words about the way we live, the way we treat each other. Lies. Empty words. That's a reality that Paul knew about, and it's a reality that we need to understand. It's a pitfall. It's a danger. We're surrounded by empty words. We're surrounded by people who tell us these things. Well, Paul wanted the Ephesian Christians, and he wants us to beware of that reality. Don't be deceived by that. Don't be led astray. It's interesting. He says that um, this behavior, uh, he says, results in the wrath of God which comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's the end of verse 6. He doesn't say which will come when Jesus returns, which would be true. He actually says it comes now. This, this wrath of God comes now. He describes it in Romans chapter 1. He describes what this wrath looks like. It's, it's not fire from heaven. Though the manifestation of the wrath of God that Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 5, in which he describes in Romans 1, is God giving us over more and more and more to our own sinful impulses, our own sinful desires. As we buy into the lie, as we, as we become more and more committed to that ongoing way of life, God simply removes his restraining hands. He, he, he lets us do what we are determined to do. And that is actually the wrath of God in its most, wrath, in its most wrathful form. And it comes then. It, it comes immediately. I mean, you, you look at the statistics of our culture and uh, the breakdown of the family, the, the breakdown of individual personalities, the number of people who are, who, are, who are so distraught and desperate and confused about so many things in life, so much pain. I'm not saying all that's traceable to one act of deception or one act of disobedience, but as a culture, as a group of people, we see these things. This wrath comes upon us. There is an antidote. He's already described the antidote in part. He talks about, um, back in verse 4, about thanksgiving. Do you know what an antidote to porneia is? An antidote to these things? It's, it's actually, according to Paul, an attitude of thankfulness. An attitude of thanksgiving. To, to praise God, to thank God as an alternative to throwing ourselves into the desires and covetous lusts of our flesh. It's to thank God, to adopt this attitude of thankfulness. And he, he talks more about it. It's, it has to do with light. Light. He's talked a lot about light. Light, which shines, is the antidote to the darkness that confuses, that 
night walk in Ireland. The, the solution was the light that we could see not only the, the dangers we were in, but we could also see the beauty, the wonder. So with light, there comes an awareness of the dangers and an awareness of the beauty and the awesomeness. And that awesomeness and beauty leads us to thanksgiving and away from the dangers that would destroy us, the lies that would deceive us. Paul cautions us of this pitfall of empty words that deceive. Now he has one more thing he wants us to know, and it has to do with relationships. Look at verse 7. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Avoid these unhealthy, unproductive relationships. He calls it partnering. In some translations, it uses the word associate. Uh, The idea, I think, is closer to partnering. Uh, We can't live in a world without associating with sinners. we, we, We can't live in a world without associating with those who are in darkness. Uh, We live in a world that is full of darkness. So if we're going to live in the world, if we're going to witness in the world, we will engage darkness. But Paul says don't partner with that. Don't enter into a partnership relationship. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about that this week. Uh, My background is Anglican. I've got very dear friends in the Anglican world. I've got very dear friends in Australia. Australia is a part of the Anglican communion that's been very important to me. Well, the conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians in Australia, many of them were in churches which were not doing the work of the gospel. They were actually actively spreading deceitful, destructive lies. They were promoting sinful behaviors that destroy. And so these courageous brothers and sisters in love said, we can't do this anymore. And they actually had to change the nature of their relationship and they've actually begun a new church. It's called the Diocese of the Southern Cross. And I'm praying for them that they will do this in Jesus' name, that they will do it in love, that they will boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ because we can't partner with those who are lost in darkness. We can't partner with them. We can't work in cooperation with them for the gospel. Um, That's just a sad reality of the world we live. In the church, there's so much confusion. In the church, there's so much deception. There's so much uh, of, of people being misled and deceived. And Paul cautions us that avoid those unhealthy partnerships and vo- avoid those relationships which pull us away and confuse us and distract us. Don't do that. In, in verse 11, he, he talks about the unfruitful works of darkness. If, if you get involved in these unhealthy partnerships, it will lead us into unfruitful works, whether it's a church or a denomination or personal relationships. It can lead us away from the truth and into darkness, into unfruitfulness. Paul cautions us, don't do that. Watch out for that pitfall. 
And then finally, down in uh, the very last verse in this passage, he says, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Uh, he's quoting a, another passage, uh, something that is uh, sort of a, a truism uh, for Christians that we must be awake so that we can be aware of the gospel of Christ. But I love this idea of wakefulness, awake. You know, I think a lot of us in church life, it's not even a matter of our walking beside a dangerous cliff without realizing it. For too many of us, it's almost like sleepwalking. Just, just asleep, walking along, but asleep, unaware, un, unconcerned about the realities of the world around us, unaware of the struggles for the Christian life. Well, Paul says, awake. We, we prayed a minute ago, I was very glad that James prayed for renewal, for the work of the Spirit to, to wake us up. Because we can all, over time, just slowly go to sleep. We slowly get distracted. But Paul wants the church to be wide awake, looking to Christ, trusting in Christ, experiencing more and more in Christ the resurrection power of Christ, which he's written about, which is the base of everything he has to say. It's all turning back to Christ. It's all awaking and looking again to Jesus. And each of these pitfalls are all calling the church back to the gospel in which we're living our life. It's, 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 it's calling us back to the basic truth we know that we've been taught, that we've sung about, that we've tried to proclaim. It's calling us back to that truth, to cling to that truth, and to walk in that truth, to walk in the love that we see in Christ.